In the aftermath of an October roundtable discussion with domestic violence prevention stakeholders, Governor Kathy Hochul announced a new state guidance to inform how law enforcement agencies respond to domestic incidents to discuss the model policy, including what it consists of and why it represents an improvement over the status quo. We're joined in the studio by Michael Bontz, who in another life worked for a police department in the Hudson Valley and is now a deputy commissioner overseeing the public safety office for the State Division of Criminal Justice Services. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you for having me. And also with us in the studio is Johanna Sullivan, who previously served as counsel at the Office for the Prevention of Domestic Violence and is now the director of the Public Safety Office at the Division of Criminal Justice Services. Thanks for joining us, Johanna. Thank you for having me. So for starters, what is it about the way law enforcement officials currently respond to domestic incidents, which made this a topic ripe for new model state guidance? I think one of the main reasons we needed to review this was it's been last updated in 2010. So it's been about 13 years since the model policy itself has been addressed. Uh, And in that time, we've had changes to public service. We've had changes to what we understand about victims and what we need to better serve victims. So the new policy really is centered more on a survivor-centered, trauma-informed, culturally competent policy. Not to say that the old one wasn't good, but certainly the body of research in the last 13 years has given us a lot better handle on how we can better serve uh, people who are victims of crime. Well, then let's get into the policy. What's a way in which it's now more survivor center focused than it was previously? Uh, Well, right now, uh, some of the things that got updated in there more specific to survivors are, say, for example, with body-worn cameras. Officers, as you know, are now wearing more body-worn cameras. And it's framed in the policy to give the officers to listen to the victim and give the victim the option to ask the officers if, in fact, you know, they could turn off the body or camera if they're not comfortable with it. It's something that we frame it that way so that the victim has feels that they have some autonomy to ask the officers that they may not be able to oblige, but it's recommended that they do listen to the victim. So that's just one example of the variety of ways in which we did that in the policy. And just to be clear, it would require the officer to present that as an option to the person or would someone have to know that they have the ability to do that no it would be if the if the victim asks them affirmatively could you turn off your body worn camera then they would do that and they could talk to them about it yes and why not make it uh, a situation where a person is made aware of their ability to have the camera turned off if they you know probably have no idea that it's something that can be done yeah no i mean it's definitely something that would could be covered in training and uh, and we're looking to update and strengthen our training too so And a lot of that, when it comes specifically to body-worn cameras and how the officers interact with victims and witnesses, is going to be driven by agency policy. This is, of course, a model policy. We're offering guidance up. But this offers municipalities, police, sheriff's departments the opportunity to review our policy and then make specific adjustments to the uniqueness of their local community. And body-worn cameras, you know, that can be very different with the autonomy across the state as to how different municipalities require recording or what's recorded or when they can and can't take their cameras turned off. Well, in terms of this being uh, guidance, does this mean then that the state police can use this as guidance or because these are state guidelines and this that's a state agency, can you tell the state police how to respond? Well, certainly we don't tell anybody what they have to do uh-huh. with regard to a model policy. They can certainly take this model policy and use it to help shape their policy for sure. The other area you mentioned about getting an update since the last time this proposal was put out there was the idea of a trauma-informed approach. What does that look like compared to maybe what was done in the past? So I think there's a couple things in there. Uh, One is very specifically how we interact with the survivor. 
and what questions we ask, the way we frame the questions, things like understanding that they just went through a potentially high stress or traumatic event and being understanding that they may not recognize the logical sequence of the order of things that happened. We give guidance on the type of questions we should be asking the survivors. You know, instead of trying to get all of the details about everything, we can specifically look at, can they give us information about the most recent incident that occurred or the first incident that occurred? So those are very survivor-centered questions. Part of it's also trying to make sure that we are very mindful in the language we use in our reports. You know, we'd seen things in the past where perhaps an officer taking a statement might say that they refuse to give a statement or, you know, refuse medical attention. You know, that's maybe not painting the best picture of what the incident looked like. So using the actual words that the person used to say, maybe I'm afraid to tell you what happened or the reason that I don't want to give a statement is because I'm afraid of, you know, some future event. So putting that language in there is much more powerful and protects them in the long term a lot better. You mentioned the idea of preparing people for future uh, events in the way that uh, the initial response could be utilized. I wonder if you're thinking at all about statements that are initially made to law enforcement being used to contradict what they say later in court. So is there any concern about asking maybe very specific questions that could then, if the person deviates later on, be used against them? So is that in the thought process at all? I think most of what we're talking about is how we interact with the victim, not necessarily with the suspect. Certainly the... Uh, well, I mean, even the victim, too. If you say, you know, tell me what happened, A, B, C, D, E, and if the stage of events that they give at, at that initial time then is contradicted by what they remember with some time to reflect later on, I, I was curious whether there's an incentive not to maybe get the most concrete set of events locked down right away. Yeah, I think it's more about making them feel free to share the information with us. It's more important that we found out all the things that happened, not necessarily this week in sequence. We can work through that through further investigation and other pieces of evidence. Trauma-informed talks a lot about a victim might not remember everything in quite sequential order just because of the what they're experiencing. So what we train the officers, as Mike alluded to, is that to give them the opportunity to first tell their whole story and then after that follow up with specific questions, um, but recognize that the person might not remember them in the same chronological order that you know, you might expect due to the fact that they've been experiencing such trauma. So how does cultural or racial sensitivity enter into the best possible domestic incident responses for law enforcement? Basically, a lot of what we talk about is, you know, looking at the victim and how they may present to you. You might pre- might expect a victim, and often this happens, people expect a victim to look a certain way that you might expect on TV as far as how they react to something. And that may be different based upon what their culture is, what their experience has been with police officers before. And so we've trained officers to make sure that they're just responding to the person and recognizing that they come to the experience just like they always do with their own background and history and don't expect them to have a certain reaction to you, recognize where they are and try to be sensitive to that. Are there limitations, though, to that type of training if, say, the people who are responding don't necessarily look like or have the same shared experiences as the, the people that they're trying to get to the bottom of in terms of a story? I, I think that's addressed, you know, maybe not so specifically in this, you know, domestic incident model policy, but in a lot of other police training venues. Uh, certainly that's something that's considered when... Uh, dealing with victims, taking statements. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, an entire other body of police training that, that comes to bear when we respond to these incidents. With the vast majority of 
domestic survivors being women, how, if at all, do you try to prioritize women being the ones to respond to these calls when they come? Is that even something that is possible from a law enforcement perspective? Not necessarily. From a pure numbers standpoint, I think the most important thing when we get these types of calls for service is to get somebody there, you know, quickly and to get, you know, multiple their officers there quickly. And we'd never want to hold up a response to try to get a particular officer to go. And, and quite frankly, I think when you look at the, the percentage of female officers serving, um, the likelihood is not necessarily going to be there in every jurisdiction that they have a female officer working at the time. One thing that we do encourage, though, in the policy is to have domestic violence advocates and to, as as much as possible, especially we highlight it in certain situations where there might be an uh, enhanced uh, degree of lethality, to make sure that the officer works with a domestic violence advocate, that person that maybe the victim might feel even more comfortable with. But as Mike said, we're going to have to train all officers to be able to respond to this. But the use of an advocate to help the victim through this difficult time is something that we strongly encourage in the policy and encourage them to use their local resources and the statewide hotline. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about how you would like to see uh, those specialists uh, on domestic violence incorporated into the police response? For example, is there a certain time when they're called in? Should they be arriving on the scene with police? Do the police need to settle things down first? What does that best response look like? I think in general, you know, you're going to have the police is going to be the first responders. Uh, There are many places that do have domestic advocates actually on site at the departments, but not every agency. We have over 500 police departments in the state. Not every agency is going to be able to have that accessible. However, every agency does have access to the domestic violence hotline. And one of the things that we have highlighted in situations where there are what we call lethality indicators that we ask the officers, especially in those cases, to make sure they do, if they don't have an advocate that they can call, out to make sure that they connect up with the actual hotline who can then point the victim to an actual service provider locally. So again, these are guidelines. These are a model policy we're talking about. Is there anything the state can or should be doing to incentivize, I guess, local law enforcement to take on these guidelines and actually ensure they're being implemented? I think there's a lot that do naturally. You know, they look to the MPTC for guidance and policy updates. And that's the Municipal Police Training Municipal Council? Police Training Council, okay. yes. And, and DCJS tends to act as the staff arm for the council. Most agencies, you know, will look to MPTC standards as to set their policies. Uh, we also were advocating for this through our accreditation program. Agencies that are accredited through New York State are required to have domestic incident response policies. So embedded in our literature for the guidance that we give them in developing policies, we're making this model policy available as well. And the next stage in this process is the basic course for police officers uh, is something that gets updated. Every single officer has to do that. We're going to be working in conjunction with the Office of Prevention of Domestic Violence to update the domestic incident response so that it matches up with the policy and some of the things that we've included in here get included into the basics. So every officer will receive that information also. In areas where this policy does get implemented, is there any way to assess its effectiveness? Can you give us you know, a survey to survivors of domestic violence and say, were you happy with law enforcement? I mean, how do you tell if this is actually working? I think that's a, a, certainly a long-term study to, to see the direct impacts of any policy. Uh, but I think we've had an ongoing 
kind of body of research with review of our domestic incident reports. There is a statewide repository. There's, you know, municipalities and local district attorney's offices do different types of reviews. So I think there's an ongoing review of the actual domestic incident reports and kind of the follow-up to them and looking at, you know, on a case-by-case -case basis where they're going. So I think all that helps inform it. I don't know that there's a, a a one-stop shop for like a survey that'll get us there. But I think even looking at the development of this policy uh, now 13 years after the first one, there's a, there's a bunch of things we know that we didn't know then. You know, uh, Johanna had mentioned the lethality indicators. The fact that we've now updated the domestic incident report itself to indicate lethality indicators. So as the officers doing the interview, as the supervisors reviewing the report, there's things we can look to to see if there's a higher risk. And then there's additional steps that we can take. And, and that's kind of outlined in the policy as well to give some guidance on how we can prioritize those cases where lethality, indi lethality indicators exist. And I think that's an example of how this ongoing review happens. Those lethality indicators are based upon research and studies. So there's lots of studies that have been out there nationally on what are some indicators that are, in fact, leading more likely to a lethal outcome. In the domestic incident that Mike talked about in the DIR and in this policy is highlight that so that officers are educated. But it's research-based and research that informed the policy, informed the DIR, and will be informing the way that we roll out. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. I want to thank our guests from the State Division of Criminal Justice Services, Johanna Sullivan and Michael Bontz. Michael and Johanna, thank you so much. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Thanks for having us. Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. Join us again for Capital Press Room, a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse.